Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6? As we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians here on Sunday morning, we have come to chapter 6. For the last couple of weeks or so, we have been in a section from verses 1 through 4 where Paul has been dealing with the roles and responsibilities of children and parents to each other. We are calling this section God's Design for a Spirit-Filled Family. And we've already looked at God's command to children, verses 1 through 3. And last week we started, and today we will finish looking at God's command to parents in verse 4. Now, let's read the first four verses once again. Where Paul said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, as we said last week, God's command to parents is divided into two parts, the negative command and then the positive command. The negative command is simply the first part of verse 4 where Paul said, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. The Greek word there for fathers is a word that most often represents the male parent. But not always. Sometimes in the Greek it's used in more of a general sense, talking about both parents. And since Paul has been talking about both parents in verses 1 through 3, I think it's reasonable to assume he's still talking about both parents in verse 4, although, as we pointed out last week, primarily fathers. Not exclusively, but primarily. Last week we talked about how that we fathers, and of course the moms, can provoke our children to anger and frustration. Let me just review them quickly. First of all, through overprotection to the point of smothering them. Some parents mean well, but they they smother their kids by trying to overprotect them. In other words, they never extend to the kids any responsibilities because they're afraid the kids are going to exercise those responsibilities in a wrong way and hurt themselves. And so they don't really allow them to go many places, do many things. They're always questioning their judgment. This creates frustration uh, on the part of a child towards the parents. Secondly is favoritism. This is a big one. And I, I know that a lot of families who engage in this don't really mean to. But, you know, you got one kid that really is uh, shining in sports or, or in academics, and you got another child, maybe that isn't. You don't mean to put down the one that isn't, but if you're always praising the one that is, you know, doing very well in these things in front of the other child, well, that discourages the child. It makes them feel like a second-class member of the family, and that can bring upon them anger and frustration. Also, number three is pushing achievements on our kids beyond reasonable bounds. Some parents are type A, overachieving kind of people. They do want the best for their kids, and in their minds, the best is to constantly push them to excel all the time. The problem is that even when they do excel, well, that's great, but you know what? You can't just rest on your laurels kind of thing. we got to move on to the new thing and 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 we gotta you gotta win at this and and so after a while the child feels like you know nothing I do is sufficient so I'm not gonna even try anymore. Number four, I think that we can provoke our children to anger anger and frustration by discouraging them. How do we do that? Well oftentimes by constantly pointing out when they do things wrong but never praising them when they do what's good and what's right. After a while because we only point out the wrong and not the good Sometimes they think that they don't ever do anything good, and that creates a lot of frustration. Number five, a failure to sacrifice for the children and making them feel kind of unwanted. Uh, I think there's a lot of parents who have children, but really it's still pretty much about them, you know, what they want to own and where they want to go and the house they live in and the boat they want to buy and whatever, and sometimes the kids feel because their parents are working nonstop to buy all these material things, and some parents have even verbalized in moments of anger, if I wasn't for you kids, I'd be able to do what I wanted to do. I'd be able to do this or go there or have this kind of career. That's really devastating for a kid to hear that. They feel like, you know, you don't want me. You didn't, you know, you shouldn't have had me if you didn't want me. And, and that can bring a lot of anger and frustration. Number six, 
failing to let children grow up at a normal pace or, you know, not letting kids be kids. There are some parents who, in their desire to prepare their kids for the real world, the adult world of competition and so on and so forth, um, they think that, you know, any childlike behavior on the part of their children is somehow counterproductive to that. And so they demand their kids act like adults when they're like five and six years old. And, of course, this is detrimental, I think. You know, kids need to be kids. We as parents need to allow them to be kids. There'll be plenty of time to be an adult. Let them enjoy this time. I'm not saying don't give them responsibilities or, you know, um, you know, expect them to, to grow out of uh, childhood into adulthood. But um, when I see little kids and their parents making it seem like, you know, they can't be kids because somehow that's going to, you know, hinder their ability to be adults someday, I think that that's wrong. Number seven, using love as a reward for doing good and withholding as a punishment for doing bad. This is a big one too. And again, I don't think a lot of parents who do this really mean to do it, but I think that they see it as a way to motivate the kids. And you will motivate your kids through legalism and guilt, but is that really the kind of motivation you want to give to them? Our Heavenly Father doesn't want to motivate us out of guilt. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want to say, well, if you do these good things today, then I'll love you and I'll bless you. But if you don't measure up today, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to punish you, you know. I'm so thankful he doesn't treat us like that. We need to follow his example and not treat our children like that. Our love for them should be unconditional. That doesn't mean that we don't communicate to them when they've done something that has grieved our hearts like our Father lets us know, but it just is to tell, to say that we should never have our love connected to behavior. Our love should be connected to them purely because they are our children, and uh, that whatever they do, right or wrong, praise them for the good, work with them because of the bad, but don't make your love dependent on how they perform. We, none of us could survive if God loved us based on performance. And then finally, the last one doesn't really need any comment. It's pretty self-explanatory. Physical and or verbal abuse can cause our children to become angry, frustrated, and be discouraged. So we talked about those last time in detail. You can get the CD if you want to really get into those. So that was the negative command. Now we move to the positive command at the end of verse 4 where Paul said, Look, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training carries with it the idea of learning through discipline. Admonition is a Greek word that means verbal instruction for the purpose of correction. So God is commanding parents, but especially fathers, not to provoke their children to anger and frustration, but to bring them up. Let me stop there, because the verb for to bring them up in the Greek is the same exact word used in Ephesians 5.29, uh, the word nourish, nourishes or nourish. The Greek word there, translated nourish, is a word that means to feed both physically and emotionally in order to bring to maturity. There's a tendency that men have. I think it's gotten better over the years, but this was really true um, 20 or so years ago, and maybe still prevalent today to some degree. I think it probably is, although it was more prevalent when women stayed home with the kids all day and men went out to work. Now that both are working I think it's gotten uh, where you don't hear this as much. But men, for many years, had the mentality. I'm talking even Christian men. Look, my job is to go out there and work, to provide the food and the clothing and the shelter for the family. Your job is to raise the kids. Maybe your parents had that going on, all right? Where men have felt for a long time that their responsibility to their family ended when they came in the door after a hard day of work. Now, I think a lot of men, especially Christian men, fathers, have gotten a lot better with this, and they are more involved with their kids, and they don't just come home and sit down, and some do, I think, but uh, I think a lot of guys come home, and, you know, especially because the women are working so much today, too, and they both try to chip in and do things, and a lot of guys I know are very family-oriented, and I thank God for that. It's, it's changed somewhat, but Paul is really reinforcing this here, because that was a big thing in Paul's day. That the dads would go out and uh, would work, and then, you know, but the raising of the kids, that was the woman's job. And Paul is saying right here, look, 
It's a father's job to nourish his children, which means providing for them both physically and emotionally. Now, the physical part we understand. Go out, work, and make money and bring home and take care of your family. But the emotional part is where when you come home from a hard day at work, your job doesn't end there. You need to then be engaged with your kids. You need to talk with them. You need to be with them. You cannot provide for your kids' emotional needs if you are not with them or you don't spend time with them. Someone has written this, and I'm quoting to you. uh, During show and tell, elementary kids were telling what their dads did for a living. My daddy is the president of his company, one said. He travels all over the world. Well, my daddy is really rich, said another. We have nice cars and a pool and even an airplane. My daddy, said a little boy, is a professional baseball player. Kids and teacher alike were impressed with the stories until a little girl in the back of the room cautiously said, my daddy is here. I really believe that what our kids want more than anything else is for us to be there. You know, I think that a lot of parents, because they are working a lot of hours and have gone quite a bit, to alleviate some of that guilt, they come home with a new iPod or a new bicycle or something. You know, they tend to indulge the kids in material things because they're guilty about not spending enough time with them. I'm convinced, thoroughly convinced, what a child really wants and needs is their parents' time. You know, Someone has coined this expression some years ago, quality time. I don't spend a lot of time with my kids, but we spend quality time together. Folks, I'm not quite sure what that means. I think that was invented by somebody who felt guilty about not spending enough time with their kids. Quality time means time enough to spend time with those kids, to nourish them emotionally, you know, to be there for them, not just to take them out once in a while and buy them a bike or some other little thing because you're feeling guilty. Now, Paul said that we parents, both parents, especially dads, but both parents are to first of all bring up our children. That means, again, to nourish them to maturity. That's important, to encourage them, to be there for them. But we also bring them up by, first of all, training them, right? Training them, verse 4, he tells us. Again, the Greek word carries the idea of learning through discipline. Loving discipline. Loving discipline. The same Greek word is used in Hebrews chapter 12 of God disciplining and training his kids, us. You don't have to turn there, but let me read these to you out of the New Living Translation. All right, Hebrews 5, excuse me, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child. Don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. Verse 7, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. This is how God trains us and matures us through loving discipline, which is designed to correct us and bring us back on the right path. And this is what he has told us as parents to do with our children. Now, again, as we said last week, somewhere along the way, psychologists have gotten a hold of our thinking, not all but many today and even educators, and they have told people, you know, for the last generation, that discipline is really an archaic thing and really counterproductive to the development of a child. You hit your kids, you, you make them want to hit. You, violence begets violence, they tell us. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's something you should never do. Let the children express themselves, they say. If you discipline them, you'll warp their character. Reminds me of a story that I, I, I read from a book called, um, by Dennis Waitley. Uh, the book is called uh, Seeds of Greatness. Listen to what he said, and I quote, In my parenting and leadership seminars, 
I tell a true story about a young couple who invited me to their home for dinner some time ago after an all-day program at a university. This man and woman, both highly intelligent with advanced degrees, had opted for a child-centered home, quote-unquote, so their five-year-old son, Bradford, would have everything at his disposal to become a winner out there in the competitive world. When I arrived at their driveway in front of a fashionable two-story Tudor home at the end of a cul-de-sac, I should have known what was in store for me. I stepped on his E.T. doll, getting out of the car, and was greeted by, Watch where you're going, or you'll have to buy me a new one. Entering the front door, I instantly discovered that this was Bradford's place, not his parents'. The furnishings, it appeared, were originally of fine quality. I thought I recognized an Ethan Allen piece that had suffered the wrath of Khan. <laughs> we attempted to have a cup of hot cider in the family room, but Bradford was busy running his new Intellivision controls. Trying to find a place to sit down was like hopping on one foot through a minefield blindfolded. Bradford got to eat first in the living room so he wouldn't feel lonely. I nearly dropped my hot cup of hot cup of cider in my lap in surprise when they brought out a high chair that was designed like an aircraft ejection seat with four legs and straps. He was five years old and had to be strapped into a high chair to get through one meal. As we started our salads in the dining room, which was an open alcove adjoining the living room, young Bradford dumped his dinner on the carpet and proceeded to pour his milk on top of it to ensure that the peas and carrots would go deep into the shag fibers. His mother entreated, Brad, honey, don't do that. Mommy wants you to grow up strong and healthy like Daddy. I'll get you some more dinner while Daddy cleans up. While they were occupied with their chores, Bradford had unfastened his seatbelt, scrambled down from his perch, and joined me in the dining room, helping himself to my olives. I think you should wait for your own dinner, I said politely, removing his hand from my salad bowl. He swung his leg up to kick me in the knee, but my old ex-pilot reflexes didn't fail me, and I crossed my leg so quickly that he missed, came off his feet and came down hard on the seat of his pants. You'd have thought he was at the dentist's office. He screamed and ran to his mother, sobbing, he hit me. When his parents asked what happened, I calmly informed them that he had fallen accidentally, and besides that, I said, I'd never hit the head of a household. <laughs> I knew it was time to be on my way when they put Prince Valiant to bed by placing granola cookies on the stairs as enticers. He ate his way up to bed. How are you ever going to motivate him to go to school, I asked quietly. Oh, I'm sure we'll come up with something, they laughed. Yes, but what if the neighborhood dogs eat what you put out? <laughs> He'll lose his way just like Hansel and Gretel. In parentheses, Dennis said, I asked the Lord for forgiveness for not remaining silent as I drove back to the airport that day. Wow. I'd like to tell you that that is a totally unique story. I'm sure it's not. This was a few years ago. I wonder how Bradford turned out. Or as they like to call him, inmate 21745. <laughs> I don't know. Look, it may seem very with it, very enlightened not to discipline kids today. But you know what? You can never improve on what God has said. And when God instructs loving discipline, it's because... Children need it. They need it. It is not an act of repression to keep them stymied in their development. It's an act of love that will help them to grow and flourish in the kind of person God has designed them to be. Again, the Bible has much to say about loving discipline. Let me read you a few verses out of Proverbs. I'll read these to you. You don't have to turn to these, but Proverbs 13.24 says, Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you will ruin their lives. Proverbs 22, verse 15. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. 
Don't fail to discipline your children. They won't die if you spank them. Physical discipline may well save them from death. In Proverbs 29, verses 15 and 17, to discipline a child produces wisdom, but a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. Discipline your children and they will give you peace of mind and will make your heart glad. Remember, the purpose of loving discipline is correction. Discipline should never be done out of frustration and anger. Wait till you cool off, then discipline your children. If you discipline out of anger and frustration, it might wind up becoming abuse instead of loving discipline. You don't want that. And secondly, discipline must be fair and consistent. Fair and consistent. Pastor Warren Worsby said that a teenager once told him, my father would use a cannon to kill a mosquito. I either get away with murder or get blamed for everything. And she was exasperated by the lack of consistency that she was receiving from her dad in the way of discipline. Warren Worsby says, Consistent, loving discipline gives assurance to the child. He may not agree with us, but at least he knows that we care enough to build some protective walls around him until he can take care of himself. Loving discipline, consistent loving discipline is very important. All right, well, Paul talks about training, which involves loving discipline. He also then says that we are to bring our kids up through admonition, verse 4. The Greek word there is a word that doesn't so much talk about what you do, but what you say. Again, that's why we said the word means verbal instruction with a view to correct. Verbal instruction with a view to correct. All verbal instruction, folks, in raising children must be, as Paul said, in the Lord. Remember what he says here in verse 4? Don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Actually, the Greek is in the Lord. What does that mean? It means instruction that comes from God's word by one who acts as his representative. Those kids that God has allowed us to have the pleasure of you know, raising and enjoying their company, those are God's kids. And God has given us as earthly parents the, the joy and responsibility of taking charge of his kids. In some ways, we're kind of like spiritual foster parents. They're ours biologically, but ultimately they belong to him. And God is going to hold us accountable to how well we brought up his kids. Did we instruct them? Well, that means from the Word of God. Did we exemplify for them the presence of God in the sense that we treated them the way the Lord would have treated them if He was here personally? Very important point. And it all starts with us parents. that We are to admonish, or in other words, instruct them verbally from God's Word. Well, to do that, we as parents must know God's Word, right? I mean, how many Christian parents are really not in the Word? And instead of going to the Bible for wisdom and raising kids, they'll go to the latest secular book on child raising, which oftentimes is way off the mark. As parents, we must be studying God's Word. We must seek to know it and, very important, to live it in our own lives. Because unless we're living God's Word, our kids are not going to listen to what we say. If we're not really practicing what we preach the kids are going to let it go in one ear and out the other that's why it's very important that it starts with us that we know god's word that we live it in fact the psalmist said in psalm 111 verse 10 he said the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom as parents we want to be wise right we want to be wise in every area of our life but especially when it comes to raising our kids the psalmist said the fear of the lord well Proverbs 9, verse 10, I believe, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Excuse me. Uh, chapter 8, verse 12 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter 9, verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So when you see the, the, the term the fear of the Lord, recognize it means reverence for God, but it means a hatred for evil. The fear of the Lord is a, the beginning of wisdom. The psalmist goes on. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. That's where the practice comes in. It's not enough just to even know the word, which is important, but we must practice what we know. We must live it. 
And so the psalmist said, you know, it's important that we not only know what God has said and fear evil, uh, fear the Lord by hating evil and so on, but it's also very important. We're going to have good understanding in all areas of life, especially when it comes to bringing up our kids. We have to do his commandments is the idea. Now, turn to Proverbs 24 once. I want to read verses 3 and 4 to you. Listen to what Solomon said. Through wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Look, I don't know about you, but I believe Solomon had more in mind than stones and mortar when he wrote this. See, in the Old Testament, or in Scripture in general, a house is often used to represent a family. There are dozens of examples of this. Let me just give you a couple. 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. Listen to this. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Doesn't mean their two stone houses were fighting each other, obviously. Their families were, were feuding, right? But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Jesus used the word this way in Mark chapter 3, verse 25, where he said, If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. He wasn't talking about a literal house. He was talking about your family. Any family that's divided against itself is not going to stand. Parents, when you think about building your family, think of it as if you're building a house, a literal house. Some of you guys are carpenters and You've built houses, and you know the most important thing you can do when you're building a house is to dig deep and make sure you lay a good, solid, strong foundation. If the foundation is not strong and solid, whatever you build on top of it is going to crumble. I was telling the first service that several years ago, I remember hearing a true story about a community in Texas, I think it was. And uh, there was this landfill in uh, town. And for years they had been dumping garbage into it. Well, it, it got filled up pretty much. And so a developer came and bought it. And he brought in truckloads and truckloads of earth and, and patted it all down. And then he put in grass and streets and sidewalks and built beautiful homes there. And families moved in. And it was a beautiful, thriving community where it once had been a garbage dump. Now it was a beautiful little town there. And everything was great until, after a few weeks, the houses began to settle. Suddenly, the people started to notice cracks in their walls. The cracks became larger. Doors would no longer close. The concrete driveways and foundation upon which their homes were built began to crack and buckle. It got so bad they had to abandon completely the subdivision. Why? Because those homes were built on garbage. If you build your home on garbage, it's not going to stand. If you dig deep and you build it on God's word, that's going to stand. You know, Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 and 11. He said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he's talking about building faith. See, this is about building faith and character in our kids. What is the first thing that we must do? Well, we must lay a good, solid foundation. We must teach them that God is the foundation. God's word, Jesus himself and God's word is the foundation for life. We have to communicate to the, that to them early in life. We know that the foundation of the church, the government, and the family, if they're going to survive and thrive, must be Jesus Christ and his word. And without a good, strong foundation, you know, uh, Ken Ham, who uh, is the founder and director of uh, Answers in Genesis, has written a book recently about how many kids have gone to college and turned away from the faith completely. And he says, because parents have not laid a good, solid foundation. And of course, with Ken, he really believes that Genesis is the first place we should be laying that foundation because we need to tell our kids they didn't come from monkeys. We are created by God. Evolution is not the way everything came into existence. God, the creator of all, designed us and created us in his image. If you teach kids from the time they're very young 
that they were made in the image of God and that he loves them and has a purpose for their life, that will carry them through the rest of their lives. When those foundations are not laid, watch out. As the psalmist said in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Look at our nation. Look at the American family. As we have turned our back on God, the foundation that was once laid for this nation to be built upon, our founding fathers, for the most part, were godly people who loved the word of God and built this nation on God's word. But we have turned our backs on that. We are building our lives on garbage now. And look what's happening. Look at the condition our society is in, in the family. Look, building your life and family on the foundation of Jesus and his word is far more than just coming to church and hearing the word of God taught. It also involves obedience. Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 7? He said, everyone who hears my word and obeys is like a wise man who dug deep and built his house on the rock. And that house stood no matter how many storms came against it. But a foolish man, Jesus said, is one who hears my words and does not obey them. He is like one who built his house on the sand, and that house will not remain. It will come crashing down. Of course, this foundation of obedience to God's word is built on love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So again, we don't want to lay some legalistic trip on our kids. Well, you better obey God, because if you don't, he's going to, you know. I mean, I grew up in a religious system. You know, I was a Roman Catholic, and I'm not blaming all Roman Catholics, teachers, nuns, and priests for doing this, but my aunt even told the story years ago about how the nun, one nun had told her that it's a sin to waste paper. Here's a little girl going to school. It's a sin to waste paper. Here's what she actually told her. She's a little girl now, maybe six, seven years old. She said, all the paper you waste, when you go to purgatory, that paper is going to come on fire, connected to you until it's burned up, and then another piece of paper that you've wasted will come, attach itself to you on fire until... All the paper that you wasted, well, you'll have to pay for. I wonder if some kids are scared of God. If you love me, keep my commandments. So as you lay this foundation for your kids, and by laying a foundation, I simply mean that from the time they are very, very small, you begin to teach them about God. I would start teaching them about God's love. Some people believe, no, it teach them about the law. You know what? Teach them about God's love. Because when you do that, when they get older, they'll want to obey the law. They won't want to lie and steal and commit other things. I'd love for God. But lay that foundation early where you tell them about God, where you tell them how much God loves them, how much he has a plan for their life, that they are not an accident. They were made, created in, in the image of God himself. They have a purpose in life that God has ordained for them. Lay that foundation early, and as they grow, guess what? It's going to be a life built on something solid. You tell your kids they came from monkeys, and they're just a big cosmic accident, and there's no purpose to life. It shouldn't surprise us when they go out living for the moment, because you know what? Who cares about tomorrow? I could be dead. So I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry right now, because tomorrow I die, and there's nothing left. See, that strong foundation is very important, isn't it? foundation of obedience to what God has said through love. Now, once the foundation is laid, and I realize that, you know, the illustration breaks down, we're, we're going to be laying that foundation in our kids' lives probably until they become adults. And then even then we'll keep giving them little reminders, okay? But once, and we're talking about using a, a building of a house as an illustration. Once the foundation is laid, the house goes up, right? Turn to Proverbs 9 and look at verse 1. Solomon said in Proverbs 9, verse 1, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, we're not really told what these seven pillars are that support a house or a family. We could list many things that are indispensable supports that hold a family up and make it strong. I had several lists going yesterday. And there's a lot of things you could, you could say are, are, are absolutely essential to hold the family up and keep it strong. But, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, you know what, I just want to keep this real practical. And because today we're talking from a section in Ephesians 6, verse 4, about parents raising their children, I would just like to use something that the Christian author, Dr. Howard Hendricks, came up with. Dr. Hendricks has summarized the principles. I don't think we'd, he'd mind if we called it pillars today. Uh, but he has summarized the principles for godly parenting 
with his seven pointers for parents. So I thought I'd share these with you, okay? First of all, provide an atmosphere in the home that builds warm, close, personal relationships. He said, make sure the home is a place of belonging and acceptance. That means spending time with your children so that they know you and you know them. I was telling first services, it was a commercial about a year ago, about a family, you know, and how families are so busy today and everyone's kind of in their own room and doing their own thing on the computer, listening to the iPod, or the little one's playing the video games and all. And there was this family portrayed like that. You know, they're all in the living separate lives in the same house. And, and all of a sudden, the dad bought a new minivan. It was a commercial for this minivan. And it was a great minivan. It had a DVD players, and it was really neat. And the whole family was drawn to the minivan. You saw them all sitting inside. And, and the one teenage sister looks at her little brother and says, you know, you're not so bad, Billy. He said, it's Bobby. <laughs> Some families don't even know each other, you know? You know, I, I really appreciate you camping families. Now, my wife wasn't her first service, so I didn't want to embarrass her. I said that Cindy's idea of camping is a Holiday Inn. That's roughing it, okay? And I, you know, I'm, I'm right there with her. I like to camp, but I'm not a camper. But I really appreciate you camping families because I've heard a gentleman say one time that, you know what, the one thing that brings people together, families together is camping. You know, it's, it's like baptism by fire, Okay. Either you kill each other or you come back closer, all right? Because you're out there together, you're having to work together and just forced to be with each other, and hopefully that becomes enjoyable after a while. But, but if you're not a camping family, I also appreciate the families who take a night once a week and they have, you know, Monopoly evening or they have a game evening and they get together and they play games and things like that. I mean, too many families don't spend any time together. And, and that's sad. There's not a lot of closeness. And uh, that, that really creates a problem in the family. So that's, that's you know, pillar number one. Uh, spend time with each other and build a warm and close personal relationships with each other. Number two, be a good example to your children. He was talking to parents. Now he said, and I quote, your faith and values will, more likely, uh, will be more likely caught by your kids than taught to your kids. Don't be afraid to admit mistakes. Kids need to see that you are human and big enough to accept grace and forgiveness. Then they will grow up into adults who can forgive and accept forgiveness as well. Number three, and these are just some very basic, as we're calling them, pillars upon which to build your family, okay? Number three, allow gradual emancipation from the apron strings of parental authority. Dr. Hendricks said, and I quote, Begin early to feed them responsibility, a little at a time. Evaluate the results and adjust their freedom according to their ability to handle it. That's very important because sometimes we parents have a hard time transitioning from little kids to adults. And we want to treat our teenagers the way we treated them when they were five years old. And so it's important that we slowly let them grow and develop and as they uh, show that they can handle responsibilities, and go ahead and give them a little more freedom and responsibility. This promotes good growth and responsibility. Number four, when children need guidance and counsel, provide a relaxed, informal setting. Spend time building a warm relationship with your child so that he or she will be more willing to accept your counsel. Look, yelling at your kids when they do something wrong is really not going to help them develop much. It's going to alienate them from you. And when they have a real problem, they're not going to seek you out because you're just not, they're not close to you. So foster this environment where your kids know that, you know, they can always come to you if they need to ask a question or seek counsel. I appreciate that in our kids. That's something God has blessed us with. Our kids now are grown and they still call us and ask us for input and our counsel on certain issues and so on. And I really appreciate that because, you know, we wanted them to feel like they could always come to us. That if they came to us with a problem, we were going to belittle them and say, oh, come on, that's so stupid. Figure it out. Or, you know, berate them or something else. We wanted them to know they could come to us no matter what it was, and we would talk and work through it together. Number five, set limits. Children want and need the security of boundaries and restrictions. But discipline your children only in a context of love. Your children will not accept your limits unless they know 
uh, they are loved. And you tell them you love them not only with words, but more importantly, with your time, attention, and genuine interest. So important, you know, set boundaries, but loving boundaries. If your kids know you care about them, they are going to accept those boundaries more readily than if they think that you don't really care. So if you don't care about me, why should I care about your rules? What they're going to say. Number six, apply the law of natural consequences as they grow up. This is really wise and important. Dr. Hendricks says, as your children grow in their ability to make decisions, let them decide, but also let them live with the results of their decisions. If we make all their decisions for them, they will lose confidence in their own ability to make decisions. But if we bail them out and shield them from consequences of their decisions, they will grow up with an irresponsible attitude, expecting never to have to deal with consequences. In some cases, it's healthy for children to make mistakes and accept the consequences as long as they are not consequences that cause serious or lifelong harm. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's good to let your kids, it's good to let them try to walk on their own. Even if they fall a few times, they'll learn how to walk. But you don't put them in situations that are way beyond their development level to teach them lessons. Maybe you saw the story a month or so ago. Well, it started a year before that. It ended a month or so ago about a family in California that let their 17-year-old son take a ship, sailboat around the world. Maybe you saw that. Um, he made it. He was almost killed a few times. He made it. Now, of course, there's a movie deal and a book deal and so on. So the family's prospering. But I got to tell you, you know, that to me is giving a 17-year-old too much responsibility. Yeah, I just don't know. And now I just read in the paper just the other day, uh, a family, I think in Sweden, is, gonna, is, is wanting their 14-year-old girl to sail around the world by herself. Um, look, I'm all for letting the kids grow and experience new things and give more responsibilities as long as they're age-appropriate, okay? I, I think that... Um, when you give them the freedom to make decisions that are age-appropriate and then let them live with the consequences, that really promotes good responsibility and they will grow into good, strong adults, I think. But make sure that you're not just being foolish and letting them do things that are way beyond their development level. And then finally, Dr. Hendricks says, most importantly, surround your children with a fortress of prayer. Trust the Spirit of God to care for them, cover for your inevitable occasional mistakes, amen to that, and bring your children to a place of faith and maturity. Parents, get on your knees and pray for your kids like crazy. And those prayers don't end when they get to be adults, believe me. They just become more intense prayers because when they're five, they only get into so much trouble when they're 15 or 25, problems become a lot more serious. So keep praying for them. Look, I know that parenting, if it's done right, is hard work. And a lot of parents today, because it is such hard work, have just opted for, you know, a very hands-off approach. Basically, let the kids just learn on their own and very hands-off. I, I don't think that's wise. Parenting is hard work if it's done right. But let me just say this. No work is more important to your family or to society like taking the time to raise your kids the way God has said. Let me finish by reading you something I read a couple of years ago. It's a true statistics here. True story. It goes, two families from the state of New York were studied very carefully. One was the family of Max Jukes, and the other was the family of Jonathan Edwards. The thing that they discovered in this study is remarkable. Like begets like. What does that mean? Well, Max Jukes lived in New York. He did not believe in Christ or in Christian training, and he married an unbelieving woman who lacked character like him. He refused to take his children to church even when they asked to go. He has had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years each, 
seven of them for murder, 190 were public prostitutes, 680 were admitted alcoholics, bums, and petty thieves. His family thus far has cost the state of New York about $1.5 million. They have made no contribution to society that is of any benefit. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time as Jukes. He loved the Lord, married a woman of like character, and saw that his children were in church every Sunday as he served the Lord to the best of his ability. He has had 929 descendants. Of these, 300 became clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. Over 100 became attorneys. 30 of them judges, 60 of them became physicians, over 60 became authors of good classic books, 14 became presidents of universities, 5 were elected to the United States Congress and 2 to the Senate, and 1 was vice president of this nation. His family never cost the state one cent, but has contributed immeasurably to the life of plenty in this land today." End quote. Jesus said, wisdom is known by her children. A wise parent produces good, solid, responsible children. I personally believe that the, the people in this country today who have grown into model citizens, I, I'm just showing my bias now, I believe that probably a good percentage have had a Christian upbringing. Wisdom is known by her children. One more time and we'll close. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. Through wisdom, a house is built. What is wisdom again? The beginning of wisdom is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is it? To hate evil. Conversely, it means to love God and obey Him, right? Through wisdom, a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. If we're talking about raising kids, then of course the room would be the heart. When we as parents take the time to raise our kids, as God has said, and live it our lives as examples, well, we are going to fill their hearts with the riches of character, responsibility, honesty, hard work, integrity, morality, etc., these are the greatest riches we can give our kids. It isn't a new toy. It isn't a pony or whatever else parents give their kids today. The greatest riches we can pass on to our kids is a godly heritage, a love and a respect and a reverence for God and the desire to do His will and to, to seek Him for the path that He has chosen for their life. This will fill their hearts with good things moral character, integrity, honesty, etc. So may God give us the grace to realize as parents, we have a great responsibility. We are raising the next generation of moms, dads, pastors, missionaries, Sunday school teachers. This is a very important work he has given us to do. No corporate ladder is ever going to match this responsibility. No House or boat or six-figure income is ever going to be worth losing your kids for. May God give us the grace to understand what an awesome responsibility he has given us, that we discharge it faithfully. Father, we thank you that you are the perfect parent, that you love us unconditionally, but you don't spoil us. Your love is not soft and mushy and sentimental. If we make bad decisions, Lord, you often, not always, but often, make us live with the consequences because you know in your great love for us, the only way we're going to learn is if we have to deal with the consequences of our actions. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of having kids. Many of us in this room do have children. Some are small still. They're not a burden. They're a blessing. They don't raise themselves. That's up to us to do. Give us the grace, Father, to nurture them, first of all, with the kind of love and care and encouragement that we need to, to train them through loving discipline, to admonish them with loving, godly instruction from your word. And Lord, we pray that you would watch over them, though, that you would 
make up for our weaknesses, Lord, where we have failed that you would be there as their heavenly father. Maybe as we have disciplined out of anger and frustration, Lord, we know that you'll never do that. Teach them that your love is never based on their performance, that you're always there, you're never too busy for them. And when they make a mistake, you're there to pick them up. Dust them off, give them a hug. I say, now just do better. I'm with you. I'm not against you for your sin. I am for you against sin. And Father, we pray for our kids, many of which have gone back to school already. Not just the little ones, but also those in high school and college. Lord, our schools have become violent places in many regards. A society that has not properly trained its kids. And now all of us have to live with those consequences. But Father, we pray that you would put your angels around our children. Protect them physically, first of all, Lord, from anyone who would want to do them harm in any way. And then, of course, protect their minds from the godless ideologies and philosophies and agendas that the world, especially the world on college campuses, wants to pump into their brains, Lord. Father, we pray, we claim the promise in Proverbs 22, verse 6, if we train up our children the way that they should go, when they become adults, they will not depart from it. Father, now that many of them are adults and are able to make their own decisions, we pray that everything we taught them would be a voice of conscience in their heads. That as they're contemplating doing something, Lord, that we have instructed them from your word is wrong. They would hear the voice of their parents saying to them, don't do that, son. Don't do that, daughter. You know what's right. Walk in it. Honor God. He will bless you. Disobedience brings terrible consequences that we don't want you to have to endure. And so, Lord, we just pray for our kids. Sometimes we can be the best parents in the world, Lord, and the devil gets a hold of them for a while and they become prodigals. But you be with them, Lord. No matter how far they stray from us as their parents, you are always with them. Lord, keep working in them, bringing them to a place of brokenness and surrender. Save our children, Lord, those that don't know you. They know the truth. We pray the truth would really set them free as they get on their knees and receive Jesus as their Lord, not their mom and dad's Savior and Lord, but their Lord and their Savior. We thank you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.